Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his faithful love endures forever. Let all of Israel repent, his faithful love endures forever. Open me to the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord. And the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer, O God, and giving me the victory today. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord hath made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, our God, please save us. Please, Lord, our God, give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and is shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his faithful love, it endures forever. Psalms 118, and the word of God for the people of God. Our next scripture reading this morning is from uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, bearing, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God is highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Uh, <laughs> Luke chapter 19, um, we're going to read the coming of Jesus. Luke nineteen twenty-eight through 40. 28 through 40. After he had said this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, it will, you will find there tied a colt who has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying this? You tell them that the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it, and as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, Why are you untying this colt? And then they said, Well, the Lord needs it. And then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their, colt, their cloaks on the colt, I'm having problems with alliteration this morning, I apologize, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he, peace in heaven and glory 
to God in the highest, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today is Palm Sunday where we as Christians are here to gather and celebrate the triumphal entry. But if we were to be honest this morning, and in light of what we know happens at the end, it kind of seems anything but triumphant. Especially because of what we know through history about what is happening on the other side of Jerusalem at the same point, at the same part. In Crossan and Borg's book, which are two great theologians, they have a book called The Last Week. And these theologians detail how Jesus was entering on one side of Jerusalem and that Pontius Pilate was entering on the other. So Jesus was riding on his young donkey and then Pontius Pilate was riding in on a war horse. From the east, Jesus rode down, as the text reminds us, from the Mount of Olives, which is symbolically even still known as a place of peace, a center for peace, followed by peasants and starting from Galilee with the whole goal, with the whole purpose of Mark's and John's gospels and the gospel that we read this morning pointing us to this place and pointing us to this part of our text and this part of the gospel. But then we have on the west side of Jerusalem, we have not a peasant, but an empire. We have Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria entering this Jewish city of Jerusalem on the holiest day of the year. It's Passover. With a cavalry of horses and a battalion of Roman soldiers by his side. On one side of Jerusalem, we see the very kingdom of God coming. And on the other side, we see the very picture of empire. Pilate's military procession was a demonstration of both Roman imperial power and Roman Roman imperial theology. Though unfamiliar to most of us today, the imperial procession was well known in the Jewish homeland and would have been well known to the first readers of scripture. The Jewish community would have known about it, for it was standard practice for Roman governors of Judea to be in Jerusalem for these major Jewish festivals. They did not do so out of empathetic reverence, They didn't do so because of their religious devotion to the Jewish subjects, but they were in the city in case some of them were there to cause trouble. And there often was trouble, especially at Passover, a festival that celebrated the Jewish people's liberation from an earlier empire. While celebrating the liberation of the Egyptian slavery, these people knew that they needed to be liberated from the oppressive Rome that surrounded them. It was almost tangible. You could feel it. But the empire, well, it was there to assert its dominance, to remind any and all Jewish subjects that they were not free, that they were not going to be liberated. Pilate was there to remind them that although they were not slaves and in chains, he just was there to remind them of who they were, and that place was beneath him. It was beneath him. But imagine, if you will, this imperial procession and its arrival to the city. 
a visual representation of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on iron and gold as it walked through the streets. Sounds of marching feet and the creaking of leather and the creaking of bridles and the beating of a war drum. The swirling of dust, the eyes of silent onlookers, some were curious, some were awed, some were resentful. But Pilate's procession displayed not only imperial power, but again, Roman imperial theology. Because according to the theology of that day, the emperor was not just the ruler of Rome, but he was known as the son of God. We've heard that title before. It began with the greatest of emperors, Augustus, who took on a title like that, who ruled Rome from 31 B.C. to 14 A.D. His father was the god Apollos. I hope I'm telling this right, and if not, Richard will correct it all in Sunday school. His father was the god Apollo, who conceived him with his mother Atiyah. Inscriptions at this time refer to him as the son of God, as Lord, as Savior. I think we've heard these titles before. He was one that was supposed to bring peace on earth, which does not sound like the Augustus that we know, now does it? After his death, he was supposed to be have seen ascending to heaven to take his permanent place among the many Roman gods. His successors continued with these divine titles, and they took them as their own, including Tiberius, who was then the emperor from 14 to 37 A.D., which would be the point in time of Jesus' public activity. For Rome's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession embodied not only a rival social order, but a rival theology as well. So let's return back to the story of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. Although it is familiar, it most definitely has surprises especially when you look at it in this light, to where it seems like a prearranged counter-procession. Jesus planned it in advance. As Jesus approaches the city on the east at the end of the journey from Galilee, he tells the disciples to go to the next village and get him a colt and where they will find it, one that has never been ridden and one that is very young. They do so, and Jesus rides the colt down the Mount of Olives to the city, surrounded by the enthusiastic onlookers and sympathizers who spread their cloak and threw leafy branches on the road and shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. This looked like a planned political demonstration. And in some ways... It might have been. So the question for us this morning reading this text is how do the people respond to it in that day? And then how should we respond to this? How do we spiritually respond to what seems to be so political? Well, how did the disciples respond, right? That might be our first spot. That might be where we need to begin. How did the disciples respond? The disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds that they had seen. Blessed is the one that came in the name of the Lord. Well, what they did was they enthusiastically misunderstood the ways of Jesus. 
There is no indication in our text or otherwise that would allow us in any way to ascertain that the disciples in this moment really got the gospel message. They were here just for counter-protests. They could not see the humility of Jesus, the peacefulness of Jesus. They were here for the defiance. They were here for the defiance. They could not see and did not understand that the cross was before him, that the cross was before them. They could not see with eyes that could ascertain a resurrection, a resurrection that would turn the whole world upside down. They didn't know that that was imminent. They didn't know what they were walking into. They couldn't sift through what Jesus was saying to them. So they decided that they, what they wanted, what they needed, must be what Jesus wanted. They decided in that moment, what I think I need must be what Jesus also wants. So they imposed their need of liberation onto the Creator, not knowing that He was not liberating this world and Rome now, but He would liberate us forever. They were here for insurrection. Now I can't say that I have ever misused the words of Jesus for hopes of political overthrow. But I can confess to all of you today that I most definitely have been guilty of using the ways of Jesus to fit my own narrative. Like the disciples, I have used the words and the ways of Jesus to justify my own hatred sometimes. I have used scripture and verse as to why I could not attend that wedding why I could not love that neighbor, why I could not throw that baby shower. In times past, I know that I have done these things. I have misused and misunderstood the ways and the words of Jesus to fit my narrative. Because when our eyes get focused on anything but the resurrection, the point, the gospel, we try to make Jesus in our own image. It's in those moments that the disciples try to take the square peg of the peaceable kingdom of God and put it into the round hole of overthrow. And it didn't work. And it still doesn't work. And it's where we as modern day people often take the overwhelming, all-encompassing love of God and the love of Jesus and we twist it to fit our culture and our opinions and our hatred. It's in those moments when we misunderstand the ways of Jesus. But the other option as how to respond to this processional comes from none other than our friends, the Pharisees, who were in that moment begging for silence. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. Now, at first glance, we as modern-day Christians automatically look at that and say, well, of course the Pharisees are against Jesus. That's their job, right? That's what they do. But as Jewish people, shouldn't they have the same desires as the disciples? I mean, even if the disciples were getting it all wrong and it wasn't about literal political overthrow, shouldn't they be getting it wrong with them? Shouldn't they have the same disdain for Rome? Shouldn't they share the same deep cultural and religious desire for liberation? Maybe they were normally against Jesus, but shouldn't they be with him on this one point, on this one thing? Shouldn't they be with him? And we might think so initially, but Pharisee is often just a fancy word for the Jewish elite, the aristocracy, 
the wealthy, and oftentimes silence, the silence that they were demanding, that silence is only the right and the prerogative of the privileged. So as many of you guys know, change gears just slightly, as many of you know, I'm a huge basketball fan. Um, And so especially um, with the Grizzlies ruining my whole season, they ruined everything and I couldn't watch them this year, I've consumed any and all other basketball. Um, So that means I've watched any and all NBA games, a lot of college games, uh, women's uh, games. I've watched it all. So about a month ago, there was an OKC Thunder game, and they were playing the Utah Jazz in Utah. And during that game, an unusual thing happened where the star player from the Thunder got into a verbal argument with a Utah fan, which is just something that's just normally not done. But Russell Westbrook, the player, he got a technical. The fan got removed from the game. He was actually banned from the stadium. But the blow-up really started afterward when Westbrook revealed that the fan was shouting racially charged things at him. So this dialogue began in the NBA. Yes, we know players shouldn't fight with fans, but should they just have to take this racial discrimination from anybody? And that was about a month ago. Then this past week, there was an op-ed that came out in the Players' Tribune from a player named Kyle Korver. Kyle Korver is a white player that plays um, in the predominantly white area of Utah. He plays for the Utah Jazz. But this quote stuck out to me the most, and this is what I wanted to read to you this morning. It says, What I am realizing is, is that no matter how passionately I commit to being an ally, no matter how unwavering my support is for NBA and WNBA players of color, I'm still in this conversation from a privileged perspective the perspective of opting into it, which of course means that on the flip side, I could easily opt out of it. Every day I'm given that choice, I'm granted that privilege because of the color of my skin. Last week in this room during Sunday school, we had a very frank discussion on race that I thought was very thought-provoking and healing and holy and beautiful. And honestly, I went home and kind of patted us on the back and thought, we did a good thing. I am proud of our discussion. I was really proud of it. But after reading this piece by Kyle Korver this week, I realized just how privileged even that thought is. The option for silence to not discuss it is the choice of the privileged. Because Lord knows that there are African-American churches all over Memphis and the Mid-South and the South in general that don't have a choice, that have to talk about it, that can't make a decision in Sunday school to not discuss these things. This last week, a man was arrested in Louisiana for burning down three black churches in one parish, one county in Louisiana. Old churches that have been there for hundreds of years, a hundred years, one of them, were burned down. And these people, these people that are brothers and sisters of ours, they don't have a choice but to confront it. They do not have a choice but to engage it. They do not have a choice but to deal with the things that are ahead of them. So for us, silence is the right of the privileged. So the two responses in the text are either completely misunderstanding Jesus and making him fit our own narrative or demanding the silence of Jesus 
So often we try and find our place in these stories, don't we? Who should we be? The onlooker screaming, save now. The disciples desperate for political liberation. The Pharisees demanding for it to stop. But this morning, I want all of you to know I don't think it's any of that. That's not who we should be self-identifying with. Zechariah 9.9 tells us in prophesying the coming of Christ, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Because behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation and lowly and riding upon an ass. On this Palm Sunday, we look to our king who has come and who is coming, who is just and who's holy and holds salvation in his hands, who came lowly and humble and know that our placement in the story is none other than that of the donkey. The stubborn mule that gets to carry Jesus, that's me. That's you. I often don't get the ways of Jesus right. I often misunderstand and manipulate and try to redirect away from the direction of the cross. I often find myself trying to justify my own silence and explain away my own privilege. And gently and kindly, the master is pulling the reins to redirect our eyes to the cross and to sweetly remind us of our hope that is resurrection. Sometimes when we're doing it all wrong, or maybe even when we're doing it all right, our position never changes. At its most simple, our job as people of faith is just to be the donkey that gets to carry Jesus. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your grace this morning. God, we thank you that when we try to overcomplicate faith that you simplify it for us. And that we just get to carry the message of peace and good news to all that we know. That is our job. May you continue to remind us over this holy week to put our eyes upon the cross and to look forward to resurrection. In Jesus' name. Amen.